You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, We are taking uh, the two Sundays on either side of the Thanksgiving holiday uh, to look at some scripture uh, text related to giving thanks, uh, because the Bible describes the Christian life, among a lot of other things, as a lifestyle of thanksgiving. Uh, And so last week, Kendall took us to the book of Colossians, and we looked at what thanksgiving is and where it comes from, what's its source, and how do we cultivate it. And today, we're looking at this uh, famous account from Luke's gospel. Luke is actually the only one who includes it in his gospel account when Jesus heals uh, the ten lepers. Uh, And this Uh, this account is often associated uh, with Thanksgiving. Now, I got to be totally honest with you. I chose this passage for a Thanksgiving passage because I thought it would be pretty easy, uh, and I did not want like super complicated sermon prep on a holiday week. And so full transparency, that's why I chose this. I thought there's some easy truths and lessons that just kind of jump off the page and we'll just preach that. We'll just go with that. You know, th- and, and some of the truths that you just immediately see are things like, well, gratitude doesn't seem to be the norm among human beings, does it? I mean, just to, if you just took your statistics from this story, this account alone, you might say, well, like 10% of people are grateful and 90% are not grateful, which is, I hope it's not that bleak. I really, I really hope it's not that bleak, but reality, our experience of reality would, would say, you know, that seems, those numbers seem pretty close. Like in our generation, we live in a generation that has more stuff, more ease, more convenience than almost any generation in history, and yet we are typically unthankful, aren't we? We're unhappy, we're anxious, we're depressed. And so that'll preach, we could preach that. Or you could read this story and you could say, wow, Jesus helped like 10 people, but only one came back. What is the deal with the other nine? Like, why are they so ungrateful? We should be like the one, not like the nine. We should be thankful. And that would preach. We could preach on that. It's, it would be okay to make these kind of applications, these kind of preaching points from this text because they seem to be true. Because we, are, we do tend to be ungrateful a lot of times in our daily lives, and we do need to be more grateful. And so it'd be a quick and easy sermon. Be like the nine, don't be like the one, be thankful. Let's close in prayer. And you're like, sweet, that's the sermon I like the most. The question, though, is, is this the main reason that Luke included this story in his gospel account? Did he just put this story in here to tell us, hey, y'all need to be more thankful? Is that his big idea? Well, the more I read this and studied it and looked deeper into it and read what others said about it, I began to see that it actually is a lot deeper than what you see on the surface. Who'd have thought, who'd have thought that would be the case uh, with the Scripture? This text says something about Thanksgiving, but it says something very particular about Thanksgiving. There's a surprise that happens in this story, and I think the surprise is what reveals the larger point. Like the big takeaway for the people of God. Uh, We can't just lift this story out of its context and make total sense of it. In other words, we can't just look at this story in isolation and separate it from its context in the larger gospel of Luke 
and, and, and come up with an isolated lesson for ourselves because it's very connected to Luke's larger theme, to his larger purpose, to his larger gospel. And he hits on some of the very themes uh, that you see in the whole gospel of Luke in this story. Uh, and every detail in this account matters. Did you know that Luke is a meticulous historian, and so he's not lazy with details? Like what he chooses to put in and then what he chooses to leave out actually matters uh, in the story. Uh, and so I want us to look a little more closely at it uh, and see if we can see Luke's big idea. Uh, look, at, look at the text again, Luke 17, starting in verse 11. Look at the setting of the story. He says, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Now, when Luke says that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, he is not simply making a geographical point about Jesus' destination. He's actually making a theological point about Jesus' destiny. Uh, Ever since Luke chapter 9, Jesus has set his face resolutely for Jerusalem. And that means he's journeying toward Jerusalem, and he's going there. We know why he's going there for a purpose. He's going there to die on the cross. And his death on the cross and then his resurrection from the dead at Jerusalem will reveal who he is. Who is he? He's the Christ. And so the big reveal is coming at Jerusalem. But until that time, he's just doing all the things that the scriptures said the Christ would be doing. He's, he's ministering on the margins. He, he's embracing outcasts. You see him doing that all through the gospel uh, of Luke. Uh, he's crossing boundaries that no other religious leaders would cross, isn't he? Like he just crossed the, the boundary from Galilee into Samaria, where the hated Samaritans lived, and he's about to cross another boundary. He's about to cross a social and religious boundary. Look at verse 12. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance from him. And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. So as he is entering this village, before he gets into the village, he's met by 10 desperate men who are in various stages of decay. Uh, They had leprosy. It was a debilitating disease. It ate away at your skin, your nerves, uh, your limbs. They were outcasts. They had to live, by law, they had to live outside the village, which is why they met Jesus before he got into the village. Uh, they, they, They were, according to Leviticus 13, a leper had to live alone. Like outside the camp. They had to wear clothes that were torn. They had to cover their mouths. And wherever they went, they had to call out, unclean, 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 so that everyone would know that a person with leprosy was coming. You read about this in Leviticus chapter 13. Incidentally, if you ever want just a riveting devotional time, you should, you should spend time in Leviticus 13 and 14 reading about the leprosy laws. It's an awesome quiet time. <laughs> Talking about skin disease and itches and rashes and raw flesh. It's a great quiet time. Spend some time there tomorrow morning. Uh, that's where you read about what lepers had to do. Uh, what, if you read those chapters, it will make you not want leprosy. Because just because, not just because you don't want that disease, but because you're an outcast. 
right? No one wants to associate with you. No one will get near you. So you are broken physically, you are broken emotionally, you are broken socially. Uh, These 10 lepers that meet Jesus on his way into this village are a sad sight. They are sad in every way that a human being might be sad. And they stand at a distance from Jesus. They didn't dare get close to him. They didn't get close to anyone. But they still had their voices. And so they, they see Jesus coming and they cry out to him with a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And you can hear the desperation in their cry, can't you? It's a cry of faith. They call him master, which is like calling him Lord. And when they say have mercy on us, what they are saying is, Lord, help us. We are at the end of our rope. We cannot help ourselves. We can't do anything about the situation we're in. Help us. Isn't that the cry of the Christian life? Isn't this to be our lifelong cry as Christians. We never outgrow it, do we? Jesus, Master, Lord, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Like, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I can't help myself out of this situation. It's our cry. And Jesus hears their cry. What good news that is. Look at verse 14. When Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went, and they were cleansed. Don't skip past the fact that Jesus saw them here. Uh, he, he, he took notice of them. He gives them his, his full attention. Do you know how many people had walked past them without even looking at them? Because who wanted to look at them? They were disgusting It was an offensive sight to look at them in their leprosy. And besides, if you look over there, you might feel guilty about not helping them. So just keep your eyes straight ahead, right? Don't make eye contact. Don't notice them. Don't treat them like a human being. But Jesus does. Jesus looks. Jesus sees them. And he responds to their cry in verse 14 in a really strange way. He says, go and show yourselves to the priests. Why would he say that? In Luke chapter 5, he heals another leper by getting near him and putting his hands on him and saying, be clean. And when he touches him and says, be clean, the leper is healed. It's this up-close, intimate healing. But here, he stays far away, and he's like, hey, y'all just go show yourselves to the priest." Why does he do that? Why does he say that? Why does it feel like Jesus is delegating the problem to someone else? Let the priest take care of it, is what it feels like he's saying. Well, if you go back to Leviticus 14, which you will spend your quiet time in tomorrow morning, I'm sure, you see um, that the priests in those days were like the medical examiners. The priests were like the, 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 the purity inspectors. If you had leprosy, you can read about this in Leviticus 14, and you thought you were healed, you would go and show yourself to the priest, and the priest would declare if you're clean or not. But you don't want to go to the priest until you're pretty sure you're healed because you want to be declared clean. Do you see what Jesus is saying to the ten lepers here? He's saying, act as if you're already healed. 
He's saying, take a step of faith and go to the priest and act like you're already clean, like you're already purified. And if I'm one of those guys, I, I think they could have resisted this. I think they could have said, you know what, no way. <laughs> We're not doing that. We're not going to look like fools when we get to the priest to, to be examined and we still have leprosy. We're not doing that. Jesus, why don't you just take care of it now, right here? We know you can do it. We heard you did it in Luke chapter 5. Why don't you do that? But they don't resist him. They actually take him at his word. And as they go, they're made clean. As they go, it says, they're healed. And just a side note, yeah. I think one of the things that's so cool about this story is not that Jesus just, not just that Jesus heals these lepers, it's how he heals them, right? He, he honors the law of God here. He doesn't try to go around the law. He's like, well, it says in Leviticus to show yourselves to the priest, go do that. And so he doesn't do anything spectacular to draw attention to himself. There's no healing service. Right? There's, no, there's no crowds, there's no emotional music, there's no dramatic tension. He doesn't do anything spectacular at all, does he? he? He just tells them to do something very ordinary. It'd be like saying, y'all go to the doctor, get checked out. That's kind of what he did. And when they take him at his word, they're healed. And now we get to their response after they're healed. Look at verse 15 and 16. Verse 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to Jesus. Now, he was a Samaritan. So only one of the ten turns back to Jesus, which is admittedly not a good ratio. This is... It it seems like more would have come back. Now, here's the interesting question. What's the main difference between the one and the nine? Like, is the only difference between the one and the nine a degree of thankfulness? Or, to, to ask it another way, is only the one thankful and the nine are not thankful? I actually doubt it. I, I, I probably would guess that the other nine are pretty grateful. Pretty thankful. I think they're praising God because they get to return to their normal life now. Their pain, emotional pain, social pain, physical pain is taken away. Uh, they're no longer going to be outcasts. So I think they're thankful. So what's the main difference between the one and the nine? Well, I think it's in that little word, saw, in verse 15. Look at verse 15 again. It says, when he saw that he was healed... He turned back. Now, I got to believe that they, all, all of them saw that they were healed, right? They were lepers, but they, but they were not blind. They could see that they were healed. But he seemed to see something that the other nine didn't see. And when he saw it, he went the other direction. It says he turned. It's the language of repentance, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's the image of conversion. He says, I got to go back to Jesus, And so he turns and he goes back to Jesus and he's praising God with a loud voice the whole way. And that word loud voice, it's where we get our word megaphone, megas, phone. So he is praising God with a megaphone all the way back to Jesus. And when he gets to Jesus, he falls at the feet of Jesus and gives thanks to Jesus. 
And Alistair Begg, who's a pastor in Ohio, says that the surprise is not that the man gives thanks. That's not surprising. The surprise is not that he praises God. That's not surprising. He says what's surprising is that the man falls at the feet of Jesus and gives thanks to Jesus. And then Alistair Begg says he does this because this man recognizes that the only fitting location on earth to give thanks and praise to God is at the feet of Jesus. Do you see the difference? The other nine are headed to the temple because Jesus told them to. But this guy says, no, one greater than the temple is here. I got to go back to him. The other nine are headed to see the priest. But the Samaritan says, no, one greater than the priest is here. I got to go back to Jesus. I don't just need the blessings of Jesus. I need Jesus. And so he turns, and this man sees something very particular. He sees that God is at work in the world in a very particular way, through the person of Jesus, right? He sees that God has revealed himself to the world in a very particular way, through the person of Jesus. And so the place to offer praise and thanksgiving to God is at the feet of Jesus, because Jesus is where God is. And then Luke adds this other little surprising detail at the end of verse 16. He says, now he was a Samaritan. He was a Samaritan. And this is a little shot that Luke takes for those who rested on their status as an insider. He's like, oh, by the way, this guy was a Samaritan, meaning he was a double outsider. He wasn't just a leper. He was a Samaritan leper, doubly unclean doubly on the margins, and yet he's the only one who sees Jesus accurately. He's the only one who has an accurate view of Christ and sees what God is doing in Christ. And so the point of the story is not be thankful like the Samaritan. What's the point of the story? See Jesus like the Samaritan sees Jesus, and that will result in true thankfulness in your life, because true thanksgiving is a fruit of seeing Jesus accurately. When we see and savor Jesus, it overflows in thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a fruit of conversion. Now, Jesus has something to say about this Samaritan's response. Look at verse 17 and 18. Jesus lets us know what he's thinking by asking three rhetorical questions here in verse 17 and 18. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? And the obvious answer to that question is yes. Yes, it was ten who were cleansed. And then he says, where are the nine? And the answer to that question is, I don't really know where the nine are, Jesus. Maybe they went to see the priest, like you told them to do. And then he asked a third question. He says, was, not one, uh, was no one found to return to me and give praise to God except this foreigner, except this religious outsider, except this one who is excluded from the temple, except this one who by all accounts should be the least spiritually sensitive of the bunch. Is he the only one to return and give thanks? And the answer is yes. And Jesus seems surprised by this. Apparently, he thought all 10 of them were going to return. Notice 
uh, that he equates praising God with returning to him and giving thanks to him. It's not that the other nine aren't grateful for, for their healing, right? It, it, I think they are grateful for that. But their lack of outward thankfulness to Jesus shows that they've missed something huge. What have they missed? God is in their midst. God is in their presence in the person of Jesus. And they missed it. They missed it. I started thinking this week about Jesus' question, where are the nine? Where are the nine? What prevents the nine from seeing Jesus accurately and giving thanks to him? Where are they? And we don't know. Luke does not include that detail. Uh, but I, I began to think about it, and I thought, you know, I have a general idea of where they might be just based on my own life. Because a lot of times I'm like the nine. I don't see Jesus accurately. I don't give him thanks as if I should. So where are the nine? Well, maybe some of them feel entitled, right? They're like, well, of course God healed me. I'm one of his covenant people. I go to the temple. I pray. I'm a good person. I do the right thing. Of course God healed me. I deserve this. This is how I know what I recognize entitlement in my own life. I see it all the time in my own life. When things go um, poorly in my life, uh, I'm very quick to complain. I vocalize my complaints with a megaphone. When things go well in my life, I'm very slow to give thanks. I'm very silent in my thanksgiving. See, an entitled heart presumes upon the goodness of God. It's like, well, of course my life is going well. It should, right? I deserve this. But a thankful heart says, I can't believe God did this for me. I got to tell somebody. I got to shout it to the, to the rafters what Jesus has done for me. Where are the nine? Maybe some of them are focusing on the gift and not on the giver. Maybe they're so caught up in the awesomeness of getting healed that they're missing the awesomeness of the healer right in front of them. Maybe they think, well, I'm healed now. This completes me. And they don't realize, no, Jesus is the one who completes you. I think sometimes in the Christian life, we, sell, uh, we short sell our thanksgiving uh, by only tying thanksgiving to the abundance of our blessings, the abundance of our gifts. So we say things like, well, I got a lot to be thankful for. I got a car, I got a house, I got a family, I got lots of food in the refrigerator. How can I not give thanks? And don't get me wrong, we should give thanks for those things. We ought to give thanks for the gifts and blessings in our lives. But I think we've got to get, keep them in perspective. Those things are not our life, Right? Those things don't complete me. Only Jesus can complete me. See, if thankfulness is only tied to the abundance of the blessings and gifts in our lives, then those with, who have little have little to give thanks for. But if thanksgiving is tied to Christ, then any Christian can be abundantly thankful, right? can be abundantly thankful. It's why the Apostle Paul can sit in a prison cell writing Ephesians, which we've been studying this fall, and, 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 and abound in thanksgiving. And, and say to Christians, you, can, you should be thankful in all circumstances, always and for everything. Be thankful. Why? Because if you have Jesus, you have everything. 
So where are the nine? Where are they? Maybe some of them lack faith. I think initially they all believed that Jesus could heal them. That's why they cried out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, help us. Uh, But now that they're healed, they don't seem to realize that they still need Jesus. So the visible decay of leprosy has gone away, but they are still in, in a form of decay, and Jesus is the only one who can truly make them whole, and they seem to not know that. Faith in Jesus is not just a one-time thing, is it? Faith in Jesus is an ongoing thing. It's the way we live the Christian life. I didn't just need Jesus at my conversion. I need him every day. I need him to save me in every way, every day. And so I live my life by trusting him. The Bible never says God helps those who help themselves. It never says that. It actually says the exact opposite of that. It says that the theme of the Bible is that God helps the helpless by sending them a Savior, and we live by faith in that Savior our whole lives. How do you know that you have faith in the Savior? Well, it it, it bubbles up out of you in thanksgiving to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, that you're with me. Thank you, Jesus, that you'll one day heal me fully. Thank you. That's faith in Jesus. Did you notice that the last thing that Jesus does here is commend the, the Samaritan for his faith? Look at the last verse, verse 19. And Jesus said to the Samaritan, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus says to the man, rise. This is a word that would have been associated with resurrection. It gets used in John 6, associated with resurrection. Uh, So the man was dead, but now he's alive. And so Jesus says to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Literally, he says, your faith in me, your trust in me has saved you. That word for made you well is saved. And and so this, this man's faith in Jesus has not only healed his leprosy, Uh, Faith in Jesus has saved him comprehensively. How do we know that the man was saved? Because he fell at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. Was he saved because he thanked Jesus? No. He thanked Jesus because he was saved. His thanksgiving was evidence of his salvation. It was the fruit of seeing Jesus accurately. So the question for you and me is, do we see Jesus the way that the Samaritan did? Is our only hope for healing? Is our only hope for wholeness? If you do see Jesus that way, the only logical result will be praise and thanksgiving to Jesus. And guess what? The more you spend time with him, seeing him in the, in the Bible, talking to him in prayer, rehearsing the gospel story in gathered worship, seeing him at work in the world, seeing him at work in your community, the more you will give thanks to him. Saving faith in Jesus always has a thankful heart toward Jesus. Christian thanksgiving is Christocentric, right? It's centered on Christ. All thanks, all glory and praise and thanks be to Jesus. That's how we live the Christian life, by faith in him. Let's thank him together. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.